Get your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. This is the living and inspired Word of God, perfect in every way. We pray this morning as we read this Word that God would press this truth down deep into our hearts. Amen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, what a somber message to hear this morning from your Apostle Paul. We pray this morning that you would open our hearts to the truth of your gospel. That we would accept and believe what you have taught us here and will teach us here this morning. We pray again for anyone who has yet to put their hope and trust in Christ and move from death to life, that they would do so today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I believe it was John Calvin who said that there are places in our theology and doctrine where if we get it a little wrong or a little off, then we can really go way off. That's my paraphrase of dear Calvin. And this is one of those places. These three verses need to be understood, need to be embraced, need to be believed for us to understand the gospel and to really truly to be saved. We must understand these three verses. Now these, these, this section here, really, really, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, are really my favorite scriptures in the Bible. And uh, I had the pleasure, of course, of speaking just of the first three verses. Next week, we get to hear from our next pastor who is, who is up to, to wrap this up for us. But we need to understand what is here to truly embrace the gospel, to truly be saved. We've got to understand really the bad news before we get to the good news. To help us to do that today, we're going to answer some questions. Very simply, these questions, who, what, why, and when. Next week will be how. Who, what, why, and when. So let's get started. Number one, our first question is who? Who is Paul addressing? Who is he writing this epistle to? 
Well, of course he's writing it to the Ephesians, but look at chapter 2, verse 1, where we look at the first two words, and you, and you, Ephesians. The Ephesians were mostly Gentiles, but they are believers. They are saved. They are Christians. And he's addressing this section of Scripture directly to them. And you, Ephesians, through the power of the Holy Spirit and down through the ages, we can also know that as, like the Ephesians, as believers, as those who trust in Christ, of those who are saved, of those who are redeemed, he's talking to us as well. And you, and you, and you. And you, you. Notice he says, not they, but you. Many of us would like to believe that he's talking to them, those sinners out there, those people out there, the the, the he or the her or the them, but not clearly he's not talking to me. But yes, the apostle, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is specifically talking to those Ephesians, and he's talking to us as he addresses us. G.K. Chesterton once was asked for an article in a newspaper, what's wrong with the world? What, is, what, 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 sir, do you believe is wrong with the world? And he answered, I am. What's wrong with the world? Me. I'm what's wrong with the world. Paul echoes this as well, doesn't he? 1 Timothy 1 through 15, Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the foremost. I am the chief. I am the boss sinner. I'm the one. I am the sinner. Romans 7.24, as he reflects on his own sin, Paul again says this. He says, wretched man that I am, looking at his own passions and sin and proclivities, the purpose of his life, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As Jeff directed us today to, to reflect on our own sin There have been many times when I have been laying in bed at night and I've thought about my day and thought, why did I say that again? (laughs) When will you, you when can I get a hold on this tongue? James tells tells us it's the perfect man who can control his tongue. And the the real purpose of James is simply this. The theme of James is this. If you've got a tongue, you need Jesus. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver us? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Our Lord and Savior tells a parable in Luke 18 to help us think about this very thing. Listen to what our Lord says. Jesus, starting with verse 9 and through 14, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees. It's a scathing rebuke to us, recovering Pharisees, isn't it? How often do we look and look over there at those people and say, well, they, them, he, her, often it's not me, me. And we notice here that the Pharisee stands by himself and praying, but, but, the, but the tax collector, Jesus says, he stands far off which tells us really where he thinks of himself in, 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 help me, (laughs) relation, thank you, in relation to God. He's distant. He sees himself as being distant, and he's, he's geographically positioned himself in a way to be distant. And as he reflects on his own life, all he says is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is our prayer, isn't it? God, be merciful to me. We see that the Apostle Paul here tells us, preaches to the Ephesians. He he calls them out and he calls us out as well. Why this emphasis on you, you, you? Why, Pastor Kevin, why are you harping on me this morning for this? Why do you keep emphasizing that I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner? Because simply this, until you see the disease, you won't desire a cure. Unless you understand the sin in your heart, you won't desire salvation or appreciate salvation. The great Puritan Thomas Watson said this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so we often encourage you here to preach the gospel to yourself, don't we? We need to reflect on our own sin, to be reminded of our own sin, to look back and realize that was me. I am a sinner. I was a sinner, and I will continue to be a sinner until Christ comes and glorifies me, right? And as I reflect on that sin, and then I see our Savior, Christ becomes all the more sweet when we see the bitterness of our sin. So first question is who? The answer is you. Or you might put in your notes, me, (laughs) right? Me. Number two, what is your condition? What what is the condition here? Back to our passage, 2 verse 1, and you were what? Dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. I remember growing up in a Christian home and in a Christian church and often going to uh, youth rallies or youth conventions. They were very popular back when I was a kid. And we'd go and they'd have some cool speaker come in who could you know, preach to us and give all these illustrations and read from the Bible and all these wonderful things. And they were, they were great times. But it, I remember a certain invitation or altar call that, that was very prevalent back in, back in the day. And it went something like this. At the end of the message, you know, talking to the kids, he would say, 
Young people, listen to me, right? Listen to me. It's like you were out in the deepest of oceans. You were out in the middle of the ocean. You look up and you realize you're treading water. The storms are all around you. The waves are getting huge. The lightning is there. The wind is blowing. And you're completely lost, treading water in the ocean. And then you see off in the distance a yacht coming, a boat. And they sound their horn and the man stands on deck and says, Yo, here, you know, do you need help? And you say, Yes, please help me. I'm lost. I'm going to drown. And he throws you a life preserver. Then the speaker would say, but what do you have to do, kids? What do you have to do? You've got to grab that preserver, right? And they'll pull you to safety, to salvation. Grab that preserver, kids, right? It's a great story. It's a moving story. And lots of kids will be like, oh, yes, I want to grab that preserver, right? The problem is it's false. Brothers and sisters, before Christ came, you were not treading water. You weren't treading water. You weren't, you weren't bad off. You weren't like, oh, it's almost time for me to drown, but I'm still here. I'm still going. No, the biblical understanding of this passage is simply this. Before Christ came and rescued you, you were at the bottom of the ocean. All the oxygen is expended from your lungs. Your heart has stopped beating. You were dead. And what you needed was someone to dive in to come to the depths of the ocean where no one could go to grab you, to bring you up, and not just to resuscitate you, but to resurrect you. C.S. Lewis says, Christ did not come to make good men better, but to make dead men live. Dead men live. Colossians 2.13, Paul almost repeats himself. He says, And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins... Dress trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead. You were dead. And then he says this, you were dead how? You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Trespasses are those things. If you're trespassing, what are you doing? You're crossing a boundary. If you, if you trespass onto my property, you're coming onto the property that belongs to me. You're going where you ought not to go to trespass. We see signs, no trespassing. And so to trespass is to go where you ought not to go. In Grudem's Systematic Theology, he talks about this. He defines sin this way. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is defined in relation to God and His moral law. Sin includes not only individual acts such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. We see this already in the Ten Commandments, which not only prohibit sinful actions, but also wrong attitudes. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. So certainly we should not steal it, we should not steal things, we should not take things in action, but I shouldn't even think about these kind of things. I shouldn't have the attitude of covetousness. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor, Exodus 20, 17. Here God specifies that a desire to steal or to commit adultery is also a sin in his sight. The Sermon on the Mount also prohibits sinful actions such as anger or lust. And Paul lists attitudes such as jealousy, anger, selfishness as things that are works of the flesh, opposed to the desires of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Therefore, Grudem says, a life that is pleasing to God, is one that has moral purity, 
not only in its actions, but also in its desires of heart. In fact, the greatest commandment of all requires that our heart be filled with an attitude of love for God. You shall love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Paul tells us here in Romans, in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead. In Romans 6.23, we all remember that, don't we? For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Here, brothers and sisters, Paul tells us we, at this point in our life, in our living, we were dead to God. We were dead to God, but alive to sin. We were dead to God, but alive to sin. I've entitled this sermon, The Walking Dead, right? Walking Dead, and and really, the zombie is a Christian metaphor, or the vampire. When we see the vampire, we think, oh, look at how powerful he is. Look how free he is. No, he's not, is he? He's dead, and he's, he's uh, cursed to spend his time in the darkness. He can't do anything but follow his passions for blood, right? And, uh, and, so, and so the same way for the zombie, he is the walking dead. He's, he's, he's dead to life. He's dead to those around him. He's dead to relationships, but he's alive only to his passions, dead to God, but alive to sin. You were the walking dead. 2 verse 1 again, listen what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. In which you walked. My walking, my going, my living was defined by these trespasses and sins before I knew Christ. That's how I walked. How did I walk? Where was I heading? I was following the course of this world. I was listening to the world system. I was doing what the world does. If the world does it, that's what I'm going to do. If the world says it, that's what I'm going to say. Not only was I following the course of the world, I was following the prince of the power of the air. And then he defines who this is. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is that? Satan. I followed the course of the world. I followed Satan. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, our fleshly desires, our fleshly passions, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, completely a slave to my sin. When I was teaching uh, at another school a few years ago, I had a a couple of students, and um, they were... Two, two of my kids were autistic, and one was, uh, they were both sweet, sweet kids, great kids. One was very funny. He would, every time he saw me in the morning, I would, I would stand in the hallway to greet the, the young men as they came in, the young women. Uh, this was at a middle school, and this young man would see me, and he'd say, good morning, Mr. Brian. And if I had a, I had a new polo shirt, he'd say, that polo looks very nice. You look so handsome, you know, and I'd say, thank you. I would say, come on in, right? But Jose, uh, was, he worked very slowly, very slowly. And uh, I had another young man in the classroom who also was autistic, and his name was Chris, and he was obsessed with Jose's slowness. He was obs- obsessed, and Chris was very fast. And he would be like, Mr. Ryan, good morning. Hey, what's going on? You know, like that. He was just like the opposite of Jose. And I can remember 
uh, I, I had to work with Chris because Jose would raise his hand and say, Mr. Brian, Chris won't leave me alone, right? Chris won't leave me alone. And I'd say, Chris, what are you doing? He's, he's like, he's not doing his homework. He's not doing his work. He's not working. He's not reading. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. And I'd say, Chris, I'm the teacher. Okay, I'm the teacher. Let me, let me work with Jose, okay? That's my job. It's not your job. I know Mr. Brian, but he's not doing it. He's not doing it. And he would just perseverate, right? Just, right? just go on and on and on, get stuck on that Jose wasn't doing his work. I, I pulled him aside one day, and I really talked firmly to him. I said, you've got to stop. You're going to end up get, you know, being disciplined because, because you can't leave him alone. You've got to leave him alone. And so this one day, he, sa- he said, yes, I will, Mr. Brian. I, I promise. I'm going to leave him alone. I'm going to work. I'm going to do my own work. And I looked up, and I saw him one day. And as he's working, he looks across. And I had them separated totally. So he would look across. He look, he's working, and he looks across the room slowly. And you can see him looking at Jose. And then he, he didn't even see me looking at him. He took his hand, and he went. Uh, I, uh, and he literally pushes his face, and he's holding his face to look at his own work, right? And then you could see this, you could literally, like the veins popping on his neck. Ugh. And I'm just standing watching this. I'm going, wow. And all of a sudden, he starts to get up out of his seat, and I see him walking. But it was like he's walking against the wind. Ugh, like a mime, right? A friend, <laughs> you know, and he's walking across, and I, and I say, Chris? And he looks and he goes, I, and he says, I know. <laughs> and I said, Chris. You have to sit. I know. I talked to him later, and I, I said, you know, friend, you've got to leave him alone. You've got to focus on yourself. You've got to stop focusing on Jose. And he said this, and it was a, one of the most transparent and profound things I've ever heard for one of my kids. He said, but Mr. Brian, you don't understand how hard it is. You don't understand how hard it is. And I said, you're right. I don't. Brothers and sisters, before Christ, that's who we were. We were like my young student, Chris, captive to our own desires, slaves to our passions, slaves to our wants, slaves to an alien power, Satan. And we were sinners. We've got to remember, Satan, Satan sells us a lie, which is that sin is freedom. Sin is freedom. We have to remember the truth of the gospel. Sin always maybe starts out as freedom, but it always ends in slavery. You were captive to Satan. You were captive to sin. You were captive to sensuality. But we were dead to God, but following the world, following the flesh, following the devil... And Paul says that is where you lived. That was your neighborhood. It's where you hung out, dead to God but alive to sin. Colossians 1.21 says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Doing evil deeds. Why was that our, our position? Why was that our pattern? Why was that our purpose? Well, that comes to our third point, Why? Why? Why were you in that condition? Why were the Ephesians in that condition? Look back at our passage, verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the, and, and the mind, and were by nature 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Why do we sin? Why do we sin? This gets to the heart of this question. Because of our nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. There's a profound difference. If you think that that I've got to get my life all right, I've got to get my life together and stop all these little sins, you're never going to understand. You, you can't understand the gospel. What's got to change is you. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, you've got to be changed. Because we sin, because we're sinners. It was our nature. It's what we did naturally. By nature. Fish swim. Birds fly. Sinners sin. That's their nature. That's our nature. R.C. Sproul writes about this in one of his books as he talks about the doctrine of total depravity. And that's what we're talking about here, really. The doctrine of total depravity reflects the reform viewpoint of original sin. And that term original sin is often misunderstood. Some people assume that the term original sin refers to the first sin, the, the original transgression that we've all copied in many different ways in our lives. But that's not what original sin has referred to historically in the church. Rather, the doctrine of original sin defines the consequences of the human race because of that first sin. Virtually every church historically that has a creed or confession has agreed that something very serious has happened to the human race as a result of that first sin. That first sin resulted in original sin. That is, as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, the entire human race fell, and our nature as human beings since the fall has been influenced by the power of evil. So we are fallen. Because of Adam's sin, Eve's sin, the entire human race has been infected by sin, and so you can look at it this way. I remember Tim Mercer and I having this discussion years ago. And Tim, I think, uh, equated to like, like our DNA has been mutated, right? You might say, but what about free will? What about free will? Yes, God created man with free will. And what did he do with it? He freely chose to sin and plunged all of his children into sin as well. So that now we do by nature sin. And so our problem is we need a new nature. Total depravity does not mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be. It doesn't mean utter depravity. Utter depravity conjures up the idea that every human being is as bad as they can possibly be. I mean, I often joke about this, saying, you know, the great philosopher Mike Tyson, you know, said, said you know, I'm no... Adolf Hitler, but I'm no Mother Teresa either, right? And so, you know, he's saying what most people believe. Well, you know, come on. I'm not Hitler. I'm, of course, I'm not Mother Teresa. I just do what comes naturally. I sin. It's just human. You're right, it is. And that choice, that sin, is what damns us to hell. Total depravity doesn't mean that all human beings are as wicked as they can possibly be. 
but it means that the fall was so serious that it affects the whole person. The fallenness that captures and grips our human nature affects our bodies. That's why we become ill and die. It affects our minds and our thinking. We still have the capacity to think, but the Bible says the mind has become darkened and weakened. The will of man is no longer in its pristine state of moral power. The will, according to the New Testament, is now in bondage. We're enslaved to the evil impulses and desires of our hearts. The body, the mind, the will, the spirit, indeed the whole person have been infected by the power of sin. And there's no little area. When we talk about sin, another, another way of thinking of this would, would be to call it not maybe total depravity, but radical corruption. R.C. Sproul writes that the Latin word for root is radix. It's where we get the idea of radical. It means translated, it means to the root or to the core. Something that is radical is, is, is being permeated to the core. The word for core, the, the we get, where we get core, comes from the word core, which means heart. So radical corruption to the very root of our heart, to the very core of our being, that's how bad sin is. That's how it permeates every aspect of our being. There's no righteous reservoir somewhere in your, in, you know, down here where there's a little bit of goodness that, that sin doesn't permeate to. We've got to understand how, how bad off we, we were. Remember, till sin be bitter... Christ will never be sweet. So, so desperate, so corrupting is sin that in our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. We totally lack spiritual good before God. I often refer to a, 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 an essay by John Piper that's called Drinking, I think it's called Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God. And in it, he, he, he walks through how a, a believer can drink orange juice and, and glorify God. Because whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. The atheist sins when he drinks orange juice. Why? Because he says, wow, isn't nature amazing? He doesn't glorify God for that very thing that that God has given us in orange juice. He doesn't glorify God that through his eyes he can see the color orange and it's so beautiful and bright. He doesn't delight in God and know that in, 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 in his mother womb he was fearfully and wonderfully made and his, his tongue has these little things on it that make you taste both sour and sweet. And so the believer can look and say, glory to God. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And I was at a gathering just this week, and I heard a dear sister saying, isn't that wonderful about people out in the world who are, who are glorifying God when they're just doing good things? I bit my tongue really hard because <laughs> it wasn't the place for me to step up and correct her. The person who doesn't love Jesus, who helps the old lady across the street, may be doing some kind of good but it's not the kind of good that glorifies God, right? So in our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh, Romans 7, 18. He says, to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted, Titus 1, 15. 
Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Also, we see that in our actions, we're totally unable to do spiritual good before God. Our actions are corrupted. Paul says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, 8. Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. And nothing is no thing. (laughs) No thing can you do. Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. In our own passage, we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. John 8, 34, unbelievers in the state of bondage, enslavement to sin, because everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So you, you were dead to God, but alive to sin, having a corrupted mind, body, and will. And so the question you ask me now is, Kevin, is there any good news in this sermon? <laughs> Where, where's the good news? You guys talk about preaching the gospel. Come on, man. Here's the good news. Question number four, when? When? Notice, let's read our passage again and notice the tense. A little grammar here, right? Past, present, future. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul tells his blessed friends and blessed family of the Ephesians, his brothers and sisters there, you, you were dead. Yes, it was you. Yes. I'm not going to shine you on here and say you were really lovely and cute when God found you and because you were so righteous, that's why he called you to be his. No. No, you were dead. You were sinning. You were trespassing. You were going where you ought not to go. You were enslaved. But here's the, the beauty of this. You were dead. Past tense. You once walked past tense. You used to follow the course of this world, but that's all in the past. Brothers and sisters, what what changed our despicable past to our glorious present? We just sang this. Your your hell-bound trajectory was interrupted. Your hell-bound trajectory was interrupted. You were headed for for destruction. You were bound for wrath, but God. But God. That's next week's pastor's sermon. The how. You were dead, but now you're alive in Christ. If you have yet to put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ then you are still trapped. You're still enslaved. You're still bound by your sins and your trespasses. You're still walking where you ought not to go. You have no ability within yourself. You have no hope within yourself. It's pretty bad news. 
Your hope is simply this. It's Jesus Christ. That's it. In hearing the gospel today, which is how bad off you were, you have an opportunity because today is the day of salvation. To leave here being transformed. To leave here having a new nature. To be regenerated. To be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can do that today by calling out to Christ. By asking for Him to save you. By just a simple prayer of faith. Saying, help me God. Help me God. Simply pray the tax player. Pray the tax the tax player. <laughs> Thank you. Easy, easy for you to say. That prayer. Have mercy on me, O oh God, a sinner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. You are such a great God. And Lord, as we look at this bad news, we see it, we believe it, we understand it, we can reflect on our own lives. Lord, help us not to lie to ourselves, to pretend, to justify, to rationalize the sin of our past, but to fully embrace it, to understand it, to know it, because that is our incredible and beautiful testimony that while we were yet sinners, you died for us, Jesus. Thank you. You weren't waiting for us to get our act together. You weren't waiting us to follow some plan, to do something. Lord, you came and you rescued us when we were still dead in our sins and trespasses. We thank you that that is our past. We look forward to a glorious future with you. Lord, thank you that you didn't come to just try to make us better but you came to make us live. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. The elders will come forward, and if you need any prayer for salvation, for concern, for health, come forward.